Opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. Uh, this is Subversity here on KUCI with Dan Sung. Today we're going to be talking about activism in the wake of 9-11 and how government surveillance continues, uh, especially against uh, activists. Uh, and we're talking with a person who himself was visited by the FBI as a result of his activism. Um, we're talking with Sherman uh, Salam, Shemong Sal- Shalam. Uh, welcome. Welcome. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Hi. Thanks for having me on uh, today. Yeah, uh, you're a student, a graduate student at U of Washington. Yes, I am in Seattle, yep. And uh, what are you uh, studying? I'm actually studying South Asian Area Studies. I'm in the uh, Jackson School at the University of Washington. And uh, you've been an activist for quite a while. What was that? Uh, you've, you've been an activist for some time. Yes, yes. I've been an activist since uh, 9-11 when the war in Afghanistan started. Um, you know, I was a young, I was a 19 or 20-year-old Muslim uh, uh, teenager at that time, a 19-year-old teenager, and I, I was compelled to get involved um, after seeing what was going on. So within a month and a half of 9-11, I started flying against the war by myself, um, and slowly I would meet other uh, parts of the American left and would get more involved into, um, you know, political activism. Was, was this in Detroit area or... Yes, this was. This was in the Detroit area at the U of M area. University of Michigan is only 30 miles west of Detroit, and so I was active there at Wayne State campus, and I got involved in one of my old, uh, an older school that I was in, Michigan State University. So I was uh, running around quite a bit and with a lot of energy and excitement, actually believing that we could stop the war in Afghanistan. At that point, I don't think I realized... um, how much interest the U.S. empire had in making sure a war in the Middle East and in Afghanistan, South Asia, was, you know, was in their interest. How did you get come to the realization there was this uh, empire? You know, I mean, it just took, for me, it took me uh, uh, just a lot of reading and, and, um, and listening to older activists and putting and realizing that there's bases in the Philippines, there's been bases in Saudi Arabia, um, understanding what's happened in uh, Africa through British colonialism, French colonialism, and slowly I put it together. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was my original idea, but by reading yeah. and looking at these things, I, I, I started to understand that these aren't just isolated incidences, that there's been something called colonialism, and a part of colonialism is larger empires. And so that was, you know, that was a, a big... That was a big thing for me to see at that age, that, you know, we don't live in the home of the free, and, um, you know, it's not the place of democracy that I had thought for 19, 20 years of my life. So um, maybe if we fast forward to uh, this last month, what happened? Uh, why did the FBI visit you? Well, uh, uh, a gentleman named Michael Medved was coming to our school. Michael Medved is a pretty well-known uh, talk show host in the Seattle area, it was part of an event held uh, on over 200 campuses around the country, or might be 150 campuses, uh, called Islamo-Fascist Week, sponsored by the David Hurwitz Freedom Center. I think that's the, the name of it. And the basic message was that Islam is a threat to civilization, um, and that it's, uh, you know, we need to make sure that uh, 
um, extremists in Islam are contained, and most of the time when they say extremists, they mean the anti-colonial movements found in organizations like Hezbollah and Hamas. Um, recently, the Red Guard in, uh, in uh, Iran were labeled uh, ter- uh, as a terrorist organization as well, or there's a move to make them a terrorist organization. So to delegitimize the actual resistance to U.S. empire, and one of the ways is to attack the religion and the culture and the people in broad strokes. So, um, you know, we created an ad hoc student group on campus, and we started protesting it, flyering, um, saying that, you know, we don't want these people here. In fact, this is our university, and this, is, this, this invitation to these type of people don't make it safe for people of color and Arabs and Muslims on our campus. And so that was kind of the backdrop to what would lead to, you know, we were passing out a flyer, and the FBI was actually looking for a flyer that a friend and I were passing out because they had heard rumors I guess another student or some group of people had reported that I had made threats against the United States government. Did you? Did you? (laughs) Did you? um, I'll tell you what I told the FBI. The answer is no, I didn't. Um, I I did tell them when they came that, you know, I was an anti-war activist, and I'm against the U.S. being in the Middle East. The last time I heard right now that technically is not a crime. We haven't reached that. <laughs> in right United now, States right. constitutional um, in law, and so at, you know at that point they just smiled and they're like, "Yeah, you're right." Um, and you know, I mean, the other things happen too, but um, the answer is no, I did not. <laughs> how many people uh, visited you? I mean, how what can you go through that process? What happened when they knock on the door? Or what? Sure, sure. You know, it was a, a weird thing. Um, it was two white FBI agents, a man and a woman. My friend was here as well. Um, and she, she looked at, through the door and she saw two white people asking for my name. The FBI agent knew my name. And so she runs to me and she goes, Shimon, you don't have any white friends. I don't understand who these two white people are here for you. And I just was like, I was like, okay, hey. And so we go, um, we go running up to the door. And I mean, I didn't know them either. And so we, I just opened the door and I was like, oh, who are you? And, you know, they, they introduced themselves to the FBI. They wanted to come inside. At least I had enough of a basic sense of my constitutional rights where I said, no, um, you know, you can't come inside. I'll talk to you outside. And that's one of the things which, as a, as a side note, I learned is it's just so important to know your constitutional rights, have a basic sense of what your rights are, are and are not. I mean, even when I was talking to them, I realized, like, I've gone, I've, 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 I have a basic understanding of my, of my rights, but you're under a lot of stress and pressure when you're dealing with these people, and all of a sudden you aren't as confident as you thought you were when dealing with, you know, just w- w- in, in, in negotiating what your rights are. Because remember, these people are coming, I mean, they're wearing street clothes, but there's no doubt that they had guns, you know, on their holsters, under their coats. And so it, just, it, it, it causes you to double think or to question some of your own rights. And so, you know, after the whole thing happened, I called up my friends who lawyers and they drilled me again for, I think for the 50th time in my life you know these are your rights don't let this happen don't do this but anyways I mean I think that's just something I hope the listeners out there are definitely you know feeling me on although the final the final piece that one of my friends the final advice that one of my friend, lawyer friends gave me was when it comes to things about political opposition you have no right if they came in to ask we heard you stole a piece of candy from the local drugstore or the local, uh, you know, gas station, you, they would have to go through certain formal processes 
that if they violate it, you know, your, your case would be thrown out of court. But when it comes to political opposition, um, you know, my friend was, my lawyer friend was telling me straight, you know, very clearly or straight up that, you know, you, you might not have the right to think. I mean, you can try to push for them, but if they want to do something new, and when it comes to terrorism, when it comes to, you know, uh, the Patriot Act, they can make you disappear, and the lawyers, you know, should think, I can't help you that much. Um, and so that was a really, you know, I, I have a sense of that because I'm from Detroit, and a lot of people have been picked up in, in, in my city, right. uh, Arabs and Muslims, Chicano people. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dan. I think I, I, I veered off the No, it's okay, it's fine. You actually don't have to talk to them, right? I mean, that's, that's your right not, not to even talk to them. That is, that is correct. You do not have to talk to them at all. You can just say, I don't have my lawyer here, and, um, you know, come back. Uh, you can leave your card at the door, come back when I have my lawyer, or I'll contact you when I have my lawyer. Right. So what did they ask you? Well, when, so, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I think I talk a little too much. <laughs> When they, no, that's when they, basically, what they asked me was, "Did you say? Did you say anything against the U.S. government? Can we see your flyer?" When they asked me, "Can I see the flyer?" I was putting out with my friend. I, I told them, "You know, absolutely not." I mean, the joke that we use against, you know, when people say stuff like that to us uh, among my friends is, "You know, what is this uh, Stalinist Russia or McCarthy America?" And so, you know, they got a chuckle out of it, and they're like, "Okay, we don't. We we're not going to push you for it." Um, I definitely wasn't going to turn in a flyer to the FBI. I mean, I just felt like all of a sudden I was back in 1950 in the United States, or 55, when McCarthyism was going on. Um, after that, really what happened was, you know, they tried to say, look, we're here part of the community. We love you guys. We're not here to intimidate anybody. We just, we're just doing our job. If, if, if uh, we would have heard that people were making threats against you and the Arab and Muslim community, we would have been here to protect you. So a part of their game is to be as friendly as possible and to kind of, kind of um, de-arm you at that moment so you feel like that although structurally and nationally we know what the FBI does, at that moment they try to come off as good neighbors. And it's a very, I think, a very dishonest way of presenting themselves when in, when in reality, you know, these folks, are locking up a lot of people around the country. I mean, I mean, the Arab and Muslim community has only found, found this aspect out since the last 10 or so years, but black militants, Chicano militants, all sorts of, you know, activists have known this in the United States for a very, very long time, um, what the FBI is all about. So generally that was what the scene was. I mean, eventually they did leave, you know, they, they, they did not have a warrant, so they obviously couldn't come into the house, and I obviously didn't say anything, so for them, you know, that, that was all they needed. They, you know, they took your name, my name, number down. I was kind of smirking at it because I was like, you guys know who I am. You know where I live. Why are you going through this silly process of asking me all these questions that you got? And it, and it left, you know, me wondering how did they find, how did they know who I was? I've only been a student at UW for less than a, almost a semester now. Uh, I just moved to the city of mm. Seattle um, at the end of uh, August. And so really quickly, you know, I, um, all of a sudden I was thrown on the radar, which was kind of a shock. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff you get when, um, you know, you're politically involved these days. Yeah, that's scary, yeah. I mean, they probably shared intelligence, uh, the police departments in Detroit probably shared the intelligence with, uh, with them. And, uh, but that's definitely a possibility. I mean, the friends, um, in, when I was involved in a Palestine campaign in the city of Detroit at Wayne State University, Homeland Security did visit one of the folks that we were in our own group at that time, 
And of course, you know, they when she visited her house, they had pictures of her um, from a protest that she was at just two days ago. So that was even uh, that was just another. You know, I mean, you know, activists are facing a lot of repression and intimidation right now in this country, and, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if they did know about me. I mean, I can't tell the speculation from Detroit to Seattle, but I am aware that you know this was not the first run-in that either myself or people that I work with really closely have had with uh, FBI, INS, Homeland Security. Were they taller than you? Were they taller than me? Yeah, because I always <laughs> feel like they if they're taller, then they're, it's more intimidating. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they, they, they definitely, uh, I mean, they sent, a, they sent a woman and they sent a man, and, you know, they, they uh, I think the intimidation from them comes from the badge and knowing that they're armed, and mm. at that point, you know, if you slip up, you say something that just it wasn't that wasn't accurate, that wasn't this. It can be. That's why lawyers say don't talk to them, right? Um, because they, anything you say can and will, you know, what you see on TV can and will be used against you in the court of law. So you got to be very, very precise and sharp with your word. Um, if you're not, and you say something that you know, sometimes you just as you have loose tongue, you can get in a lot of trouble, and that's where. I think the the intimidation comes from those subtle things. Um, if you aren't watching, you can make those mistakes and really hurt yourself. Did Did they ask you about your uh, comrades, your fellow activists? Mm. You know, she, one of my friends, she was there. Uh, luckily, when she was home, as I was telling you earlier, they did ask. You know, like, hey, who are you working with? Can um, I don't remember if they asked, um, can we have other people's names or not? I do know they asked her name, and she said no. They asked her name because they had <laughs> asked if I have any beef with anyone on campus? Do I hate anyone on campus? And we told uh-huh. them a story where her and I were on campus flying, and the college Republicans on campus took pictures of us. And the reason this is important is because hmm. around the country, what the college Republicans, what other racist forces do to intimidate a lot of Arab and Muslim activists, and I'm sure, I'm sure racist forces do this to other activists, whether they're, you know, Chicano, Asian American, um, is that they take pictures of us. Um, they come up sometimes even pretty close to our face, and they take pictures of us. Of course, people wonder where are these pictures going, especially when you're working with a lot of international students yeah. or, you know, who have visas. Right. The, the big question is where are these pictures going? And so it tends to stifle demonstrations, protests, because it creates a lot of fear. What my friend and I do, we got out our camera. We always go with the camera. We went right up to their table, and we took a bunch of pictures of them, made some jokes, you know, called them ugly, and, you know, things like that, like, dang, these some ugly people. We have to kind of also mess with them a little psychologically, because they're, they're part of the game is to mess with us psychologically. So, I mean, we aren't, we, I mean, to me, I've, I've grown older and seen, you know, you've got to go toe for toe with, how, with some of these folks. And so what would happen is that they called the police on us, and, of course, the police were just like, I mean, I mean, although they harassed us, they were like, at the end, they were like, okay, yeah. this is technically we can't stop you. Take your pictures. Just don't bother them. And so the FBI agent then would ask her, can, can we have your name? We want your name, too. She was standing there with me. And, you know, she said, no, what do I got to do with the case? And, I mean, I definitely was happy that she didn't give her name either, although I'm sure they can find out who's living in my house, you know, at yeah, the time sure. of the week. How do, you know, how do you think they got your address? You know, that's, uh, I've, <laughs> I've been wondering that, and I have, I have some basic theories. One is that the college Republicans themselves did um, leak it or, you know, call the FBI hotline and told them that X, Y, and Z is, um, you know, that, you know, I'm saying, you know, things that they don't agree with, and that's how they got it. 
Um, it could be possible that, you know, I do think the FBI has undercover agents around some of the biggest universities in this country, um, especially at protest times where they know a lot of young Muslims are going to come out, like during Islam or fascist week. Mm. So I wouldn't be surprised if they had an undercover agent there. They saw, you know, I made some pretty militant speeches um, that was, you know, saying Muslim folks and Arab folks should be proud of what's happening in the Middle East. In many ways, you know, there's no, we don't need to hang our heads in shame. And I'm sure the, if, if you're the FBI person who's for U.S. empire, then you're going to be very upset that something like that is being said on the university campus. Yeah, I'll tell you a story about what happened here. Uh, the CIA has been recruiting on campus uh, over the years, and one time a South Asian friend and I uh, passed out some leaflets, uh, you know, books critical of the CIA to give to the students who were applying or who were interested in their booth. It was in the science fair, science career day or whatever, and <laughs> on campus. And uh, the this one CIA guy who was rec- a recruiter has been there before. I've actually interviewed him and written a piece about him. But he, um, and then there was another, there was a bunch of people with him. And then another guy um, who I had seen before, he was actually black. Uh, he, um, they sent basically Asians and blacks to recruit at Irvine because we're like 60% Asian. And so, uh, at UCI. And um, so he actually, this time, I was taking pictures of him. And he actually took out a picture, a camera and took pictures of us. So it was quite uh, interesting that they're supposed to be recruiting students, not spying on uh, people here on campus. Right, right. How did you How did you guys feel when you you know they were taking pictures of you? Well, I I complained uh, to my lawyer. I actually uh, have a case uh, that I won against the CIA for spying on me, and they're not supposed to collect information about me. That's why um, it was over the Privacy Act, which uh, is still the law and technically. Um, the Privacy Act says you cannot, um, the federal government cannot collect or retain information relating to the First Amendment uh, rights, uh, any activities relating to First Amendment uh, rights that you engage in. They cannot collect or retain of cit- U.S. citizens and permanent residents. So that's still the law. It was uh, enacted uh, in the wake of the abuses of the uh, Vietnam War era. But, uh, of course, since 9-11, you know, all bets are off. And so, even though there's that law, you know, they're, they're still doing this other stuff, uh, focusing on South Asians, on Arabs, and, you know, basically harassing them and collecting uh, protests and information, even though they're not supposed to. Um, so, that I mean, that could be a basis of a, a lawsuit, I would think, um, in future. And in my case, they... Um, you know, I just complained to my lawyer about it, but uh, and I talked to a reporter, but nothing happened. Yeah, and they haven't. I, as as far as I know, they they're more. I think the recruitment now is more off campus. Maybe they don't have a booth usually in the last few is years. The, have students have students effectively kicked off? I mean, is that why, or it's for different reasons that they're off campus? I think That's yeah. I think there was another time where students actually, um, the protesters, protesting students crowded into a room in the career center where he was, uh, one of the recruiters was speaking, and he cut short his presentation. He was talking about all the high-tech stuff that you could get involved in if you joined the CIA. And he he actually got scared and uh, cut off the presentation and split. So I think maybe that experience soured them. So, oh, the, I mean, so oh, definitely oh, resistance uh, and protests uh, may work. Right, right. No, that, that, that's great to hear that, you know, that's happened at UC Irvine. Okay. 
But I, recently I haven't seen them uh, posting the recruitments, although they probably still carry ads. Uh, you know, so, or maybe they're listed in the career center. I'm not sure because I don't go in there. Um, I'm not a student, actually, but <laughs> I'm a librarian here. Um, so in terms of your... Um, have there been any other consequences after that? You wrote an article for Counterpunch. Uh, did you get feedback from uh, people uh, about yeah, that? Yeah, I think nationally I've been very, very, you know, touched and inspired by the amount of people that, you know, do really support, uh, you know, people to have a voice and be able to speak out and organize. I've even gotten some people who say, you know what, man, I don't agree with a lot of things you wrote, but I definitely don't agree with the FBI visiting anyone in this country. And, you know, that really just shows, you know, I mean, to me that there can be a togetherness among the U.S. left, although a lot of people might not agree with each other on all the, you know, T's and dots uh, when it comes to political questions. I was really touched. Um, the sad part is you do also get a lot of hate mail, when, mm. <laughs> uh, which has been a smaller part. I mean, I'd say for every 10 positive emails I get, I get one, you know, hate mail from uh, Baker, a white supremacist, a fascist, um, someone who's super anti-Semitic, people who will be saying stuff like, we don't want you here, get the hell out, what are you complaining about, this is yeah. a white Aryan nation. You know, so there's a lot of other theories, racist theories out there about um, why this thing is happening and people are letting me know also what's going on. But, you know, I just feel like you can't get intimidated by that either. I mean, there's just a lot of uh, racist people out there and you got to keep your eyes on, you know, who are some of the anti-racist folks and I've definitely seen that across the country. You know, it's, it's it's either a silent majority or a, or a silent minority. At this point, it's hard to say, but there's enough people where you don't need to feel alone. And that was one of the big points of, you know, sending the article to Counterpunch, which was, you know, amazing that they published it. I mean, I was really happy because they have a big readership, was, A, getting the word out because the best defense is a public defense, and right. also making sure, you know, this isn't a struggle that I have to go through alone um, by myself. And this is a moment when I definitely feel like, you know, there's a lot of support for this type of work. What do you think of the depiction of a uh, Muslim in the in the media then? Is it, I mean, uh, do you feel like the mass media just totally mislabeling everybody? Yeah, yeah, I mean, to right now, I mean, I think in the last 10 years, especially since 9-11, I mean, I think the, 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 the mislabeling, mislabeling, the stereotypes have gone further back. I know there's Arab activists who've done a lot of type of work on you know, Hollywood stereotyping of Muslims and Arabs. We've seen, you know, a lot of movies. I think uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in one before 9-11 where, um, you know, the, the terrorists or Arabs, and they all look like, mm. you know, just very, they're, they're always sweaty and angry and, you know, upset at everything in the world. And so we always see those kind of things on TV, and I just think that's a part and process of, of you know, religionizing uh, Muslim and Arab folks. I mean, I'm, I'm very upset at what I see, not only on the on the on the TV shows and movies, but also on the news. I mean, it's it's very upsetting to see the type of Muslims they they bring on. They are always, most of the time, forced to apologize for crimes that you know you don't see individual white folks apologizing forever. And so it's just a, it's a, it's an unbelievable thing what's happening right now in terms of the media and Muslim and Arab folks. Did, were you always a Muslim? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was born and raised a Muslim. I'm technically I'm from India, although I, you know, grew up in Detroit, and a part of my life was also in the suburbs of Detroit. So I, I'm I'm from there, and you know, I was born Muslim, raised a Muslim. Today, um, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent like many Muslims around the world. 
you know, I'm, I'm, I practice loosely the, the religion, but I definitely identify and am a Muslim person culturally and um, religiously. Those are my roots, and so, I, you know, there's no turning back at that point. Do you dress? Uh, do you dress a particular way? No, no, no. I mean, I think more than anything, what, I, what you know, I think there's a generation of young people in this country who. You know, I, I thought about this, that we've also taken strong aspects of American culture, of hip-hop culture, or sure. Chicano culture, and we're not just the Muslim that you, you know, people think that you might see on TV, that they might show you on TV. So I know there's a lot of young Muslim men and women who do dress a very, very specific way. But, you know, for me, I think there's just, you know, I'm part of a younger generation that's been here for a long time, and especially growing up in a city like Detroit, you know, I've been influenced by a lot of other things, which I think is a good thing. It means Islam and Muslims are being created, you know, in a different way in this country um, with new forces, which I think are really positive forces, you know, and I'm happy to see that the, those type of things are happening here. For sure, for sure. Um, I remember one time I was at another conference, uh, a conference, and the former head of the census was there, and he actually apologized for... The Census Department had uh, actually released some uh, maps and data um, relating to Japanese Americans in um, during World War II, so that eventually they could be round, uh, the density of uh, where Japanese, um, you know, population was wow. concentrated. It, it wasn't the actual names, um, but they released that, and eventually the through the War Department, I guess, at the time, and they rounded up people. And so he he's, he he apologized for that, and then he said that he thought it would happen again in Detroit area, mm-hmm. and he really predicted it. And of course, now a lot of that stuff is online, and <laughs> you can actually draw your own, right. get your own um, maps of uh, where concentrations of Arab Americans are, for instance. Um, so um, so that kind of um, you know government uh, tracking has gone on for a while, and um, right. you know, and it's uh, it's just you know, information they use, and they and now the worst thing since 1911 is they cooperated with each other. Before the you know the CIA didn't talk to the FBI, and so there was less um, less danger actually of um, of them creating or using all this mass database. But now uh, it seems like they're more willing to cooperate, and so a lot of misinformation gets fed to each other, and uh, they can use that to round people up. Right. Do do you feel that uh, in terms of your work, uh, what what uh, the, what draws them attention is now mainly stuff about the Middle East and um, about uh, or about Muslim uh, activities. Uh, do you think? Are they, wh- what do you think is? Uh, why do they see you as a threat? I guess. Right. I mean, I do think, um, especially because of nine eleven. Activists working on Palestine, Iraq, Iran, um, Egypt. There's a big, there's a big workers movement in Egypt going on right now. There's all sorts of things happening in the Middle East that are really shaking up um, the way the U.S. has set up its empire in that region. And so, just like in the '60s, if you were a Black Power activist or an anti-war activist, today one of the most sensitive areas of work. Um, is definitely going to be the Middle East right now just because of how how much interest the U.S. government has. So, I mean, I think without a doubt that has to do with it and also be the type of politics um, that my friends and I really are stand for. I mean, we over the years we've really just become committed 
anti-war, anti-imperialist activists. We don't think, you know, Muslim organizations de facto are terrorists. I mean, we, we do, we, I mean, I, I do think there is a such thing as terrorism, but I also think there's a such thing as legitimate struggles out there, and there's plenty of groups in the Middle East that take that kind of struggle, struggle up. And if a new movement is going to develop in this country, it's going to have to understand those struggles, just like in the 60s, for whatever disagreements people had with the NLF, um, with the FLN earlier, with all the liber- liberation struggles in Africa, people have to have sympathy and some type of solidarity with these struggles, or there's going to be a very difficult time for people to build new movements here, because those movements are against the very, um, the very, the very foundations of our own government. And if we're going to have a sense of not only new racial identity that says, look, we aren't just Americans, but we're part of a world majority of people of color, a world majority of oppressed people, then we can't look at ourselves as closed by American boundaries, but we have to be open to new boundaries, meaning open to the anti-colonial struggles, um, you know, struggles against, uh, struggles for land reform, struggles against uh, women's oppression, all these types of things have to be opened up, and I think they're very, very dangerous possibilities for the U.S., and right now, as I was saying earlier, the Middle East is the hot spot. Um, considering what's been going on the last 10 years. So I think that's really why it's a matter of politics, because a lot of Muslim and Arabs, you know, because of the repression, don't do um, anti-war, anti-imperialist politics. They might just do humanitarian aid. Humanitarian aid tends, tends most of the time to be more acceptable, although in in Detroit area, plenty of humanitarian groups have been also searched. Their offices have been raided by the FBI. Right. But the rumors of, you know, are they work on sending this aid to terrorist organizations. But right now, most of the political energy in the community is funneled in the, in the direction of humanitarian aid. I think if there's going to be a break, if there's going to be a positive break, it has to be re-geared toward more overtly political anti-war, anti-imperialist work. So you don't, uh, do you have faith in uh, elections? <laughs> do I have faith in the elections? No, I mean, do you believe? Yeah, do you be, do you vote? And do you believe that um, people, sh- you know, you should elect Arabs or Muslims to Congress, for instance? Hmm. Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's a great question, and and this is one of the most controversial questions that when I answer, people get very, very upset. But uh, <laughs> I'll answer, and yeah, hopefully you won't get upset. No, <laughs> no I don't care. But um, you know, being in Detroit. I've I've witnessed a string of of black mayors, and I've had I've had I've I've been lucky enough to also discover black power activists like James Bogg, Adolf Reed Jr. Uh, James Bogg still alive in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, or excuse me, excuse me. I'm uh, I'm now thinking of his uh, wife. His wife. Uh, Grace Lee Grace, Bogg. Grace Bogg. James Bogg is now has now passed away. It's been many years since he passed away. But I was lucky enough to learn about these writers and see the critiques they would have of elected officials. In, in, in cities like Detroit, uh, and I really saw, you know, even though Detroit, for example, has had a string of black mayors, there's more black uh, uh, young men in prison. There's more, um, you know, complete destruction of the school system and in the city. You know, I don't know if people on the West Coast, I know I'm, 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 I just moved to Seattle, and people in Seattle have no clue what Midwest cities look like. And a lot of these Midwest cities now have had black administrators, black uh, mayors, uh, in Dearborn, which is an Arab American community predominantly, right. there's, there's Arab uh, councilmen and councilwomen, but the problems and the raids of the FBI still go on. So these elected officials, once you're put in this spot, 
you're objectively or you're, you're constrained by the very nature of the system you work with to enforce the laws of that system. So you are a rebel once outside, but even a rebel going into a position of, a, you know, being a mayor, being a city council person, because of the way it works, your, your rebellious behavior, your rebellious content is all of a sudden defanged, it's taken away. So for me, you know, I, I'm not going to, I don't get into arguments of, you know, should you vote, should you not vote. If someone wants to vote, fine, as long as we realize that the real power lays outside, lies outside of officially elected offices. So if someone wants to say, you know what, I'm going to vote for X, Y, and Z, I, I'll try to keep my mouth shut as long as it's clear that we still got a lot of organizing to do independently of anyone we put in office. Oh, I'm with you, Shimon. Yeah, definitely. That's what I feel too. That it's easy to get co-opted. You know, once they give you a position or they give you a praise, then you're less likely to <laughs> challenge them. I mean, right. that, why would you, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, cut the cut the hand that feeds you, uh, so-called. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, just, I mean, there's some people want to just get power that way. That's fine, but I still think the resistances in the streets and that's what um, will change things actually I mean you need probably need both you need the street rebels and you need the people that are going to go behind closed doors and try to do things but um, the street rebels are definitely where I'm standing with right <laughs> I feel you on that <laughs> well we're talking with Shimon uh, Salam who's a student activist from U of Washington and got a visit from the FBI. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM and on the web at KUCI.org. Um, maybe you could talk about some of the other struggles you've been involved in. Uh, for instance, uh, anti-racist uh, activities. Uh, what, what, uh, what type of activities would that involve? Were there, were there bands? Were there bands playing white power music and that kind of stuff? Or um, was it other stuff? Um, a big a big problem in the Midwest is fascist organizations, Nazi organizations. Mm. Um, they hold rallies, demonstrations, public events in uh, in people of color neighborhoods. I mean, you know, the Detroit, Toledo cities, which are predominantly um, black cities. Um, these people have the nerve to come into these cities and hold events. So recently, I don't know, I think two years ago in the fall, you might have remembered a news report that there was a riot in Toledo. Mm. Um, it yeah. was, uh, you know, it was, at least in the Midwest, it was a big deal. And that riot was actually not a riot. It was a rebellion. You know, I remember being there myself, and it was unbelievable. The cops came out in large numbers. We were in a black neighborhood, a lot of young black uh, kids my age, you know, in their 20s. And we were all, you know, I mean, we weren't stunned, but we were all angry that the cops were protecting these, these Nazis. And so, you know, the Nazis were given the right to, you know, say... X, Y, and Z, and so, of course, the youth got up and they, they, they started taking apart uh, literally pieces of concrete from the street, um, rocks near gardens, and fought the police and fought the Nazis. And so on TV, it was shown as a riot. What they showed mostly on TV, if I remember correctly, was after the rebellion was over, there, were, there was looting of gas stations, there was some of those things going on, but it totally missed out the fact of what was the original that made people so angry, which was that the police were protecting, you know, outright racist white supremacist forces in a black neighborhood. Mm. And so 
those are some of the things in the Detroit area when I when I lived there. Um, we were involved with. We've been involved with. Uh, I don't know if you remember, maybe three, four years ago, there was a uh, a rebellion in Benton Harbor. It's a city near Chicago, and Benton Harbor is known. It, it's unfortunately famous for its um, extreme segregation. It still almost looks like a city from the 1950s, where on one side of the tracks is a is a horribly impoverished um, part of the black city, and on the other side, I kid you not, I've been to Benton Harbor. I, you know, I demonstrated there against the police brutality that led to the death of a, uh, one or two men. It's been several years now, so I don't remember the exact details of what led to this rebellion. But on the other side of the track, mm. it was a totally different world. You know, it just looked like paradise, and that's where a majority of the white folks live. And so uh, we've been involved in a lot of these things, trying to connect the, the war against Muslims and Arabs in the Middle East with the war against people of color at home, because at the end of the day, those two wars aren't as separate as, you know, as uh, some people might make it out to be. I, I mean, I imagine, you know, you and I are well aware of the relationships between wars abroad and wars at home. And so I, we really, you know, I think it's important to make those connections. And so that's some of the anti-racist, um, anti-police brutality type of stuff that um, I know I've been involved with for the last couple of years. How about in Seattle? Has there been a lot of police brutality? You know, unfortunately right now, I'm a, I, I don't know enough. I've been here mm. two and a half months. I'm getting a, a feel for it myself. Um, I, you know, I, all I, I, what I do know of the city is that in the last 10 years, a lot of people of color, like usually how American cities work is that people of color live in the, inside the city and the wealthier, um, most of the time it happens to be white uh, citizens, live outside in, a, in the suburbs with the donut effect more or less. But what's been happening now in places like Seattle and New York is that there's been an intense takeback of the city by the elite. So uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, the, the black community has been kicked out of a, a district called, it's ironically called the Color District, which is a throwback to the days of segregation mm. in Seattle itself. Today it's known as the Central District. So they, they were obviously wise enough to change the name. But they've been kicked, kicked out, and now they live, uh, a lot of people of color live in the suburbs, so it's a very strange, the southern end of suburbs in Seattle, so it's a very different phenomenon than a lot. Like in Detroit right now, the city still is predominantly black. The center of the city um, hasn't been taken over by the, the yuppie elite, the new elite created by the stock market and some of those, you know, bonanzas going on at Wall Street. So my experience in, in Seattle, although I know, I'm sure there's all sorts of police brutality going on in the city, what one of the things that this city tries to project, which I so far do not believe, is that it's a city of progressive ideas, liberal ideas, that it's a safe place for, you know, people of color, minorities. And to me, I mean, I, I don't separate Seattle from the, it's an American city, and all American cities are racist towards people of color, are prejudiced against homeless people. You know, they, they have all these key characteristics, and I don't, I am not convinced that Seattle's any different than uh, any city I've been to in the United States, although plenty of Seattleites will get upset if they heard something like that. Yeah, for sure. Huh. How about uh, the comparison, uh, comparing, sorry, uh, comparing you are Washington with Wayne State. Uh, Wayne State is a working-class university, uh, very labor-oriented, uh, at least the faculty are, definitely, um, and they study labor. And um, how, how, how do you see... How do you s compare with uh, uh, Washington? You're Washington. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't know if, you know, the listeners have gone to, you know, I mean, like UC, the UC school system, I know, is a very big and prestigious school system. So is the UW University, you know, the, the, the schools that I'm yeah. attending. Unfortunately, when you go to schools like Wayne State, they do, because of the 60s, there are, there are traces of, you know, urban, urban studies, labor studies, um, the women's studies program, obviously black studies and American ethnic studies or third world studies, those are obviously very key, uh, uh, key victories from the 60s, but all those now have been under attack at Wayne State. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, really? Wow. Uh, I mean, the, the urban, the urban, I forget the exact name, it's called Kalma, which is the urban labor studies department, has been dismantled at hmm. Wayne State. Imagine the urban labor studies department being dismantled at a place like Detroit, the home of, you know, Chrysler, GM, Ford, uh, the home of a uh, city that once had two million people, most of them African-American, and that department is being dismantled. It's because the state of Michigan itself does not have the money right. to keep the state going. There's a serious crisis in many American states where they're, they're underfunded by hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, of course, what gets cut. It's not the prison system. It's not guns to the police. It's <laughs> education and who gets hit in Wayne State. I mean, over Dude. half the students at Wayne State are students of color. You'll see right. Chicano students, black students, Arab American students on a level that you won't see, I think, on too many campuses in this country. How about at Washington? Is the student body uh, mainly minority or people of color? I think at UW, um, it's probably majority white. Um, I mm. mean, I was a little surprised myself. I'd say, uh, I don't know the statistics, but from flyering, um, being on campus a lot, I definitely, I know, unfortunately, I don't think it's a majority uh, people of color at this point. Um, there's, I, I'm very happy to say there's a lot of Asian Americans on UW campus, but of course what's missing um, in a very, very, uh, you know, it's so obvious are where are black students, where are the Chicano students. Yeah, because um, yeah. you know, it's, you cannot find them on our campus, and so that's a that's a serious you know a serious issue that anti-racists will have to pick up in the course of uh, the next few years if they want to make a dent. Oh yeah, are, are the students more uh, progressive in in Detroit area than in the Washington area? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people <laughs> have asked me that question since I moved here because people want you know comparisons: what's it like in Detroit and what's it like in Seattle or UW and Wayne State, respectively. Um, I, I to me, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say there's they're any more progressive. What I'll say is that the issues students think about are very, very different. Mm -hmm. In Detroit, in a city with uh, a majority black folks and a and a large Arab and Chicano population, you know, people are thinking about the conflict in the Middle East. People are thinking about Katrina because for a lot of students, they had family in New Orleans, their family in the area that was affected by that. For a lot of Arab and uh, Muslim students, they have family in Iraq, Lebanon, Palestine. So the issues there tend to be focused, you know, on those type of things. And for the Chicano community, of course, it's a big question of immigration, um, you know, citizenship in this country, labor, all those type of things are on the plate. I think on UW, because you don't have a large black population, a large Chicano population, some of those issues are thought about, but the sense of the, the desperation, the anger, the, the urgency is not there. And so that, you know, that I, I don't, I, I do think Asian American activists like myself and others and or Muslim and Arab activists can, you know, have the urgency, the, 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 the sense of our communities under attack, but because 
U district or the U dub is in the area called the U district. It's so separated from the community, from working class folks that there's a sense of just uh, isolation almost mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. part of a lot of the students. And so the issues right now, I do think, have to be clarified a lot more. And in, in my opinion, uh, among the students at UW, what are the key issues? I think students are are searching for it uh, themselves right now. Do you think the community colleges are, are, are more activist oriented in in the area in in you Seattle, know, for instance? Um, my own experience, I've organized at Wayne State, which wasn't a community college; it was a large working class institution, more or less. I haven't had a lot of experience. I don't want to make anything up, so I haven't had a lot of experience yeah. organizing on the community college scene. Um, I've really been giving a lot of thought about it, just because, um, as you as you, as you, you know, as as you see what these larger institutions look like, um, with you know these with very prestigious students and with, with very wealthy backgrounds, you mm-hmm. really start wondering, you know, are these some of these students going to be able to sympathize? Uh, and have solidarity with the people in, in, in the country, especially even in Seattle where, you know, we live in a neighborhood uh, just down the street is a neighborhood called White Center, and ironically in White Center it's majority people of color, so I don't understand how the, <laughs> how the city names anything in the city. But, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a massive Chicano, Asian American population, and most of the students at UW have little or no connection to it. It's just astonishing how the, this, this city of Seattle has been divided into pockets of wealth and pockets of, you know, poverty. And so White Center is uh, on the edges of Seattle. So as I was saying earlier, most of the city is being taken back by the rich and the elite. White Center is one of the few places, my neighborhood included, my neighborhood is starting to see gentrification. Yeah. So they're building $300,000 homes now. But, and so it looks like we'll be kicked out in the next two to three years out of this neighborhood as well. So the students, you know, I think a lot of them don't, aren't, aren't rooted in some of the very problems um, the other other like uh, community college students might be, or Wayne State students might be. So those are you know some of the tensions or problems facing you know anyone who's organizing uh, and politically active at a place like you does. For sure, yeah. Uh, how about religion? How would that affect alliances you make? I mean, does it? I mean, do you take stands on things that are different from how you've? You know, would you join an alliance with a group that does that your religion may not agree with? For instance, um, I mean, to me, how I how I think you know religion should play into it. Well, I think let me put it this way: I do think in Islam there's a wide spectrum of religious and political thought, ranging from you know the Taliban, which many of us disagree with and cannot stand. We think you know it's a horrible organization. To some of the most you know libertarian and freedom-loving ideas and thinkers, you know, like Ali Shariati, for whatever contradictions he had in Iran. Um, and a host of other uh, folks in the Middle East. So to me, it's a question of not of, well, do we agree on, you know, what did Jesus Christ represent or, or well, how many days did it take for God to create the earth? I think those questions, to be honest with you, I'm willing to have friendly conversations with anyone who wants to have them. What's more important for me is, well, what, what language of freedom does our religion speak? So if, if, we're, if, if you know, if, if I meet a young Christian person or a young a Hindu person or a Buddhist person, my interest will be, well, you know, in how you interpret religion, do you see anti-racism as a struggle that you have to be engaged in? Do you see, you know, being against the war as a struggle you have to be engaged in? So those are the ways, I think, of making alliances and not taking, not, not, not taking fights on 
some of those questions like, you know, is, is, is how many gods are there? To me, there's plenty of space and open debate for those type of questions. I mean, even as a Muslim, I'm not going to be, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make my political boundaries based on those questions. And I think there's a lot of Muslims like that who aren't looking for theological um, affinity all the time. They're looking for political and uh, moral support and solidarity. That's what a lot of Muslims out there, and I think most people out there want um, when it comes to the navigation of religion and politics and solidarity. Is that true with, uh, with working with gay groups, for instance? But, I mean, I can speak for myself. I mean, I know... You know, for one, there's a there's a there's a gay Muslim organization. Right. Um, I forget the name of it off the top of my head. Right. So mm-hmm. I mean, for me, there are gay folks in in the Muslim community. So that question has to not be, "Oh, you're a Muslim, are you against gays? Are you for right, gays?" Right. The question uh-huh. to me now is, "Well, you have a gay community. What? Well, how do you want to work with them?" And so for me, obviously, no part of the population can be can be can be can be oppressed, can be sacrificed. But for me, the gay struggle is part of the Muslim liberation struggle, if we want to name it that. They cannot be separated. And it's very, very important that Muslim activists, Arab activists, South Asian activists, see the link that the imperialists, the racists, will point to places like Palestine and say, well, gay activists are oppressed in Palestine. They're being rounded up and shot in Palestine because Muslims culturally cannot tolerate gay people. And so they say, look, these Muslim gays go to Israel and they're free there. Now, of course, there's been plenty of studies done that show that a lot of the Muslim gay folks, the youth that go to Israel, end up becoming, you know, almost like sex slaves there. And so that's also, I believe, a lie uh, that they're free in Israel. But my point is that they use the oppression of gay people in our own countries to point out how barbaric we are. To me, we need to fight that and say, you know what, we will fight the oppression of gay people in our own country. The imperialists have no business, because when imperialism tries to liberate people, like it did with women in Afghanistan, like it did with the larger thing of democracy in Iraq, it makes a mess. The only people who can truly fight these questions are the people who are oppressed themselves. And so, you know, that, that's how I look at the question of the gay community in, in, in the larger Muslim and Arab or South Asian um, and world. It has to be a part of our, our struggle. And so, you know, I have no sympathy for people who do have or racism against gay folks. I mean, that has to be fought pretty hard. A lot of the people who have been active in these anti-racist struggles and um, police brutality uh, struggles have been anarchists. What, what do you think of anarchism? You know, I mean, you mean anarchists who are involved in anti-racist and right. police brutality struggles. That's what you're saying. What do I think of them? Right. Well, I mean, what do you think of this as a... I mean, because the for them, the... The main thing is the state, right? It's the, how the state abuses right. uh, its power, and right. um, so, do you find that? No, I mean, I think I think uh, politically and philosophically, anarchism is a great and very powerful critique of society and vision of society. Um, I think you know there's been a lot of there's a lot of anarchists in the Seattle area. I'm sure there are in the California area at UC yeah. Irvine and the other UC Berkeley schools. And so, I think it's a very very good thing. I think, uh, you know, Muslims, um, other activists can definitely pick up on some of the strengths of anarchism and, and, you, and, and use them to build, you know, a, a more libertarian, a more free movement. And they can learn from the mistakes of anarchism as well. The, or, the organizational problems, I mean, if there's been one critique given to anarchists yeah. around the world, mm-hmm. it's been that 
they have trouble building organization. And so, you know, these type of things are worth, I think, worth studying, looking at the strengths and the weaknesses. So I have definitely no bo- no beef, no bone with, you know, anarchists who are engaged in good anti-racist police brutality work uh, and things of that sort. So I think I think that's a great, you know, that, that, that those are great people to be in touch with and to be learning things from. Well, you're doing uh, graduate work now. Do you plan to uh, stay in academia? You plan to teach? <laughs> um, you know, at this point, it's not. I'm, I'm not sure uh, where I'm going to balance that spectrum. For me, you know, it's, it's just really important not to get too separated from my own community, from my own people. You know, I, I, it's very, very important. I don't get locked up in a dungeon in academia. I've been an activist <laughs> for five, six years, and I've, I've had to really struggle to be where I'm at. I've had to, you know, uh, fight against my own parents, my own community, which thought I was making horrible mistakes in my life you know, becoming a political person and not becoming the stereotypical model minority doctor or engineer and all these type of things. So for me, it's really, really important that I keep my ear to the ground and, you know, and, and not, not, lose, not lose my roots from where I'm from. And for me, where I'm from is the Black Power Movement, the Asian American Movement in the 60s, anti-colonial movement. That's part of my, my family, my, my, my history. And um, I think if I end up in academia too long, it's definitely gonna, you know, it's, I'll, I'll be lost in space. <laughs> That's the way I think about it sometimes. <laughs> I know, really. Um, you mentioned the Asian American movement, uh, and I know you, you, you've talked to me on email about these uh, two books that came out that have stuff on Asian American movement. Uh, one is from the UCLA Asian American Studies Press. It's called uh, Asian Americans: The Moment, The Movement, and the Moment. And the other one is uh, Legacy to Liberation from an uh, anarchist press, actually, AK Press, although the book is not really anarchist-oriented. Right. But um, which, uh, which of those books did you find uh, inspiring or interesting or whatever? <laughs> no, I found, both, I found both books to be very, very helpful. Um, especially, you know, Fred Ho's book, I thought had a lot of great stories of the Asian-American movement as it was dealing with the Cultural Revolution and dealing with Muslim, dealing with questions of how to build, you know, organizations in this society that can help working people understand what's happening and help working people gain real uh, material goods, gain a sense of confidence. I think that's a really, really important thing that, you know, young activists these days, um, I took me a long time to learn this, you know, I'm 26, is that the NGO way of organizing will get you in a lot of trouble. And what's amazing about Fred Hull's book is that it does offer the strengths and the mistakes of a movement that saw, you know, China as a very important place on earth, rightly so at that time in history, but it really couldn't make some of the, 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 the it couldn't adapt the questions of China to the questions of America, and it had trouble understanding where to go from there. I think the, the other book, The Asian American Movement, The Movement and the Moment, is that the name? I don't want yeah, to mess it up. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, I mean, I think that does, that does a... Uh, I think for younger folks like me, it provided a great survey, uh, generally of the, the the initial like how did the movement start? It, it does it does you know open that door, gives us a window into that, and I think it's an important thing to see how movements start. That's something that's been really forgotten. People think that the Black Power movement started in 1968. Sometimes they think 1955, bam, the movement started. They rarely ever mention the 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 years and years of struggle that Malcolm X had to put into the Nation of Islam all the work that 
you know, the Black Panther Party had to do before they become famous and big. It, it takes, you know, no, everyone talks about the moment of, uh, of notoriety or the moment an activist becomes famous, but rarely are there deeper discussions of, well, where was this activist for 10 years when he was between 20 and 30 or, you know, 35 and 45 when no one knew about him? The activist was flyering, organizing, writing, giving presentations, involved in, you know, protests and demonstrations. That's what builds movements. What you see on TV, what you end up in a book time is not necessarily what builds a movement. And, you know, those, I think those type of books really help demonstrate that. Do you know if those books are being used in schools at all? Uh, universities, um, classes, I mean, uh, courses, whatever. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, I do know um, they've been influential in my life. I, I definitely try to recommend them to, you know, Asian-American students. And even if those, to me, I, how I look at it is, it's, it's not just about radical literature being used in classes in the university. It's about what do we do after we've read the radical literature. For and sure. 99% of the time, in the university, in the classroom, that's where it hits the wall. There's no <laughs> sense of let's take very sharp lessons from this and very aggressively apply them to today's world. Let's make some mistakes. Mistakes are good as long as they're new mistakes. That's fine. I mean, I'm always around activists who are terrified of making mistakes. I'm like, as long as we don't make old mistakes, who cares? Let's make all the only way new movements will be built will be with new mistakes. And so let's go out there and make all the new mistakes we can. But in the university, in the academia, uh, academic world, you know, there's this intense anxiety about going out to the real world and, and doing these things. And I think structurally, the university doesn't lend to activism anyway. Most of the time, if you're active in the, in, in, in the, of the classroom activism, it's not really going, to me, it's not going to boost the confidence of students. It's not, it's not a fight for gaining student power, talking about the university, because I mean, you have a professor in the classroom, so they're not going to give up. There's already a real tension between who's been supposed to have the power. To me, students have to organize independently of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the school administration, of the school faculty, and build their own power with, with I, I do think, with the janitors, the workers, the groundskeepers of the university and the community in general. Those, I think, should be student allies, but I, I'm very doubtful that classrooms will use that in a dynamic way to rally a community and a university to fight for power. I've gone into classes to talk about police abuse, uh, but you always wonder, uh, and it depends on the professor. The professor, Some professors are really good at drawing the links out, the lessons from the struggles in the streets. Um, but then at the same time, you realize that the students, most of the students are not going to get involved. Uh, to them, it's a, you know, it's a guest lecture. <laughs> that's like lecturers coming in and they get entertained and they get you know right. to know about a little bit about uh maybe activism but um i mean it's the other there's no motivation to get involved really i mean the rewards are, are not to get involved in academia right yeah 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 i mean i just think right now we're living in a and i think i mean i sometimes i think we're living in that 1955 to 1960 period and we're kind of reliving small parts of it, meaning that, you know, there have been big movements in this country, like the, the, the Chicano immigrant rights uh, uh, protest that happened a year and a half, two years ago. There have been all sorts of other things that have been going on that, have, that are really, um, that are actually really big when you think about it. It's involved a lot of people, but for some reason it hasn't been able to grab hold of people 
the way eventually the Greenboro sit-ins would, and eventually the Freedom Ride would, you know, in 62, 61. So I think, I think we're kind of in that moment, and I think activists who do feel alone got to have a sense of, like, look, we just got to keep trying, keep pushing along. Eventually, you know, something, eventually new ways of organizing will pop up. I mean, remember, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know this, is that, in 1960, when the Greensboro sit-in happened, it wasn't organized by an organization. It was a spontaneous thing that happened, oh, right. and that was, a, that was a huge catalyst in the civil rights movement. And so to me, new methods of fighting some of the new oppressions that people see uh, need, to be, need to break out into the open, and they haven't done that. And I think that will help activists like me, activists like you, in figuring out, well, how should we organize? And I think... You know, people like me, we are we are kind of waiting. Like, okay, where's going to be the new break, which will will help other people break out of the apathy, break out of the comfort zones that they're in. And I don't think they're around. I don't think they're far away. I think they are around the corner, whether it's a year, two, or three. But I don't think it's a matter of ten or fifteen years. I think the U.S. as a society is in deep trouble. There's all sorts of problems, and I'm, I have full confidence that working people, unemployed people, just like the Greensboro sit-ins created a new possibility for black people in the 60s and eventually would create new possibilities for the women's rights movement, the Asian American movement, host of other movements will do the same for us. And so to me, I'm just, you know, if I keep your ear to the ground, people are, you know, they're, they're trying to fight what they see is wrong, but the fights are just difficult and that's why it takes, that's why it does take a long time. Sure. You know, for new things to break out. Well, thank you. Um, we're going to end with the uh, announcement. Uh, Southern California Anarchist Conference coming up at the Southern California Library for Social Studies and Research, 6120 South Vermont Avenue, 6120 South Vermont Avenue in L.A., 90044, uh, from 1 to 9. And for information, uh, there's a website, DIYZine, doityourselfzine.com, DIYZine.com. There'll be uh, workshops uh, and also live music from various bands, um, Azalan Underground and other bands. And uh, so that's this weekend, Friday, uh, sorry, it's Friday and Saturday, 14th and 15th at the Southern California Library, the Southern California Anarchist Conference. Uh, thank you, Shemin, Shemung, for being on the show and uh, discussing activism. Uh, hang in there. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank yeah. You. So this is here with KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And this edition will be podcast. So look on the website at KUCI.org slash tilde D-T-S-A-N-G. This is Dan Sang signing off for Subversity.